Welcome. Thank you for joining this CBRL webinar. Um, coming from you, coming to you from different locations. My name is Carol Palmer. I'm the director of CBRL in Amman. And I'm joined by, um, of course, my colleague, Dr. Tafik Haddad, director of CBRL's Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem and deputy director of CBRL for this, our annual general meeting, AGM lecture 2021 by Professor Raymond Hinnebush from the University of St. Andrews. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with CBRL, Council for British Research in the Levant, we're an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct support and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant uh, and the public dissemination of that research. We are part of the British Academies uh, seven or eight, including the British Institute for the Study of Iraq International Research Institutes. And through the British Academy, receive a grant and aid to continue operations. But we are ever grateful to our members and friends whose donations enable us to support and develop additional research projects and outreach, including events such as this. Um, we have an office in London at the British Academy with our fellow Biri. And um, as I said before, I'm speaking to you today from Amman, from the British Institute in Amman. And Taufik Haddad is joining us from the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem. Um, we hope that you enjoy today's webinar and that you will join us also for future events. Um, please do continue to look at our website. If you're not already on our email list, do join it uh, for more updates on our events and research activities and more. And I think without further ado, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Taufik Haddad. Thank you, Carol. So as Carol noted, my name is Dr. Taufik Haddad. I'm the director of the Kenyan Institute, which is the CBRL's branch in East Jerusalem, where I am currently located. I'd like to start off today by uh, taking a quotation from this report called Syria at War, of which Professor Raymond Hinnebush was one of the lead uh, authors. Uh, from the uh, introduction, it writes the following. The human and social toll of the conflict in Syria has been devastating. Casualty numbers in the hundreds of thousands the total number of involuntary inter internally displaced persons and refugees amounts to 12 million people or half the pre-conflict population. Those who have survived face an incredibly difficult daily reality. In 2019, more than 11.7 million people within the Syrian Arab Arabic Republic were still in need of at least one form of humanitarian assistance with 5 million of these in acute need. Widespread destruction of educational and health infrastructure casts a shadow over current and future humanitarian human development prospects, particularly for an entire generation of school children. The economic toll has been equally staggering. By the end of the eighth year of conflict, damage to physical capital was estimated at 117 billion, while added to the estimated gross domestic product losses of 324.5 billion, total economic losses amounted to 442 billion. Re real GDP by the end of 2018 was 46% of its 2010 levels. As the humanitarian economic figures we just heard uh, 
I think we can all be in agreement are enormously disheartening. Attempting to follow and remain abreast of the political developments in Syria today are no less daunting. The Syrian conflict has generated enormous confusion amongst the politi politicians, the global community and academics. As we struggle to keep up with the various actors, their history, both before and during the past 10 years, and the conflict dynamics to have emerged locally, regionally, and internationally. This has led to significant demoralization, confusion, and I would also argue marginalization of the, the core issues at the heart of the struggle. In this context, Professor Hinebush and his work, and that of the Center for Syrian Studies at the University of St. Andrews, which he heads, has been a font of analytical clarity in a sea of often overdetermined, polarized scholarship and rhetoric, and sometimes even a great deal of posturing. His materialist an analyses rooted in political economy has provided a stable and reliable analytical lens for those with the heart and the stomach to intellectually, academically, and morally grapple with the significance of Syria today in all its dimensions. It is for these reasons that we are proud to have chosen Professor Raymond Hinebush as as the keynote speaker for our 2020-21 annual general meeting. And I'm very proud to introduce him today. Professor Hinebush is a professor of international relations and Middle East politics and the director of Center for Syrian Studies at the University of St. Andrews. His work on Syria includes authoritarian power and state formation in Ba'athist Syria, which came out from Westview Press in 1990. Peasant and Bureaucracy in Ba'athist Syria, also West Point, Westview Press in 1989, Syrian Revolution, and he has several uh, edited volumes, uh, which were all in the description provided uh, in uh, the introduction to this uh, and the send out uh, invitation for, for this lecture. Please go check him out and his readings, his writings, his, his writings are insightful, uh, clarifying and uh, uh, well, I'm not sure they can be <laughs> described as inspiring, but they are inspiring from an academic perspective from somebody who's able to maintain the, the clarity and the integrity of an academic when faced with such daunting situations. So with that introduction, uh, Professor Hinnebush, please take it away. Thank you so much for your kind uh, introduction, Tofik, and also for the invitation. And thanks to Carol also for the invitation. It's really an honor to be here. I'll just preface uh, my presentation by saying uh, that it, it, it's based on kind of early stages in my research on this, on the current struggle for Syria, in which I have been trying to bring together various literatures on different aspects of this very complicated struggle and to try to integrate them. So to establish a sort of macro the macro contours of the case or the problem. So being at an early stage, I, I welcome uh, feedback. So to begin, um, of course, the notion of a struggle for Syria goes back to the, the classic by Patrick Seal on the way uh, Syria was uh, the target of interventions way back in the 40s and 50s by its neighbors and global powers. And of course, the logic of the struggle for Syria is that you have this, this uh, regular competitive intervention in Syrian politics driven by the belief that as Syria goes, so goes uh, the Middle East. And in some ways this has certainly remained relevant. Uh, and indeed, uh, 
more recently, beginning in the 2000s, but particularly after 2010 and the, and the beginning of the uprising, you have scholars talking about a new struggle for Syria uh, in the sense that Syria was seen as uh, the linchpin of the resistance axis and also arguably the weak spot in the resistance axis. So that again, what happened in Syria would matter for arguably the whole region or so it was thought. Now, I argue that uh, this struggle for Syria, the new, new struggle for Syria, if you will, uh, has metamorphized since the uprising. It's taken some somewhat new, but also recognizably old forms. The, the Syrian uprising, of course, changed beginning with nonviolent protests, it morphs into militarized civil war, which was combined with this competitive intervention, uh, a kind of semi-proxy war in Syria. Currently, there's a new stage, I would argue, in the metamorphosis, the, in the sense that the proxy war has been sort of semi-frozen, but the struggle, of course, continues, but taking another form, basically economic, an economic form of struggle over reconstruction, over sanctions. So let's just uh, say a little bit about what's at stake in this latest version of the struggle for Syria. A number of things are at stake. At the level of the Syrian state, of course, uh, uh, the struggle is about whether the Assad regime will be able to reconstitute its authority over the country's territory, over its reconstruction, in spite of its use of massive violence against its own population, uh, which of course contravenes the, the principle of responsibility to protect. So whether this the regime reconstitutes its authority or not has also implications for what kind of global order we live in. Will it succeed or will it be forced into some sort of power sharing or territorial confederation or alternatively governance in Syria could implode with all the dire spillover to European and Middle East neighbors that would arguably result from that. So that's a lot to begin with, it's at stake. But at the regional level, arguably at stake is this question, uh, that we saw already in the so-called new struggle for Syria, will the Iran-led Iran -led resistance axis be broken or strengthened? And then finally, at the global level, it seems to me something else is at stake. And that is, will the US attempt to weaponize the world financial system to sustain its global hegemony? Will this prevail? Or will those states promoting a multi-order prevail, notably Russia and China? And, and Syria, it seems to me, is a test case of this, along, of course, with the linked case of Iran, because they, they both, they're, in, they're actually inseparable. Now, let's, let's look at uh, sort of the first stage or dimension of this current struggle for Syria, and that is what I call the semi-proxy war, which roughly begins in 2015. And, in some respects is continuing. This of course was uh, a, a war in which you have this competitive interference by powers militarily intervening in Syria. Most of them are also sponsoring or aligned with Syrian proxies and these Syrian proxies are fighting each other. And then coming out of this accompanied, accompanying this is the way the country gets divided into warring spheres of influence. 
Now, two episodes in this struggle are, are particularly important to look at because they kind of shaped the current situation uh, of pro semi-proxy war that we're in. First, of course, there was Russia's intervention. This changed the game in the Syrian uprising, transformed the military situation, saved the Assad regime, backing the regime's territorial recovery, making opposition victory pretty much impossible. And, and that leads to the exit from the conflict of the Gulf's opposition backers. With the leverage that this gives Russia over all the rival parties in the conflict, uh, Moscow sought at the Astana and follow-on meetings to try and broker a settlement among the regime and the opposition, also bringing together Turkey and Iran, a settlement that would keep Assad in power with some minimal power sharing. In parallel to this at the diplomatic level on the ground, Russia was trying to use its so-called reconciliation agreements to, to, to forge out of ex-opposition fighters a kind of loyal opposition incorporated into Russian controlled military units that would reinforce power sharing on the ground. Now, the other episode is the US intervention. First, it's the Russians, now the US joined the battle. Initially, of course, it's against ISIS that brings the US in, but quickly the US pivots to obstruct Russia's ambitions. Now, in 28, what, what set this situation up is, is that around 2018, we saw a kind of race to fill the power vacuum that was being left as ISIS, as IS contracted. And we, we saw Syrian government forces backed by Iranian militias are moving towards Deir Azor and its oil fields and towards the border crossings with Iraq in competition with the US-backed Syrian democratic forces. And in this scenario, there are a number of instances where the US attacks the Syrian forces or their uh, Iranian backers, preventing Damascus from its bid to reestablish its territorial control over the country as ISIS shrinks. And what that does is it leaves the US and its SDF proxy controlling much of Northeast Syria, where you have the concentration of Syria's oil and lots of its food and hydraulic resources, which are crucial to reconstruction and which the US is now in a position to deny uh, Damascus and therefore frustrate uh, Moscow's ambitions. Now, just looking for a minute at what the motives of the U.S. for doing this and for staying in Northeast Syria are, they were exposed by a kind of covert struggle that was going on between President Trump and the Washington establishment. And, and we saw uh, in this struggle that Trump made that declared that for him, the U.S. would stay in Syria because of Syria's oil, to keep it from falling into the hands of the regime or the Russians. As for the Washington establishment, um, they, and they're quite candid about this, particularly Jim Jeffries, their, their aim is to keep Syria a kind of quagmire for America's rivals. That is to, to keep it a sort of failed state, which won't be an asset for Russia and Iran, but will drain their resources. They, they had apparently militarily won the contest, but Washington now is in a position to deprive them of the fruits of victory. So to Washington, uh, a Russian and Iranian victory uh, in Syria would have 
and Jeffrey says this, would have shifted the regional power balance against the U.S. and Israel. So he's, he's speaking in terms of the old struggle for Syria. Who wins in Syria wins at the regional level. So preventing a Russian and Iranian victory was arguably, uh, uh, for, for him, for much of the Washington establishment, a vital U.S. interest. And if they could block a Russian or Iranian victory, that might provide the opportunity to actually finally break the resistance axis. So from Washington's point of view, that's what was at stake. Now, what's the outcome of this encounter between these two great powers over Syria? One can look at two kinds of things, which, which seem to be at this point, semi-permanent outcomes. There's one, the division of, of Syria into three rival spheres of influence. They've got the regime areas, controls about three quarters of the population. Iran and Russia deeply penetrate this, uh, the regime areas, both its political structures and society itself. Then you've got the Turkish occupied areas, large swaths of uh, Syria's northern border uh, occupied by Turkey. Turkey incorporating much of the former Free Syrian Army into Turkish-led military formations. Governance in this area services as an area intimately linked to Turkey. And then you've got the third uh, uh, sector, which is the, the uh, Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces uh, governing the east, autonomous of Damascus, protected by the US. And then at the same time, the other thing you've got is uh, three conflict fronts, which seem quite durable. Uh, they're kind of the axes of the proxy war. One front, if you will, is uh, the regime and Russia versus Turkey fighting over Idlib, which is a kind of jihadist enclave that Turkey's protecting. Then you've got Turkey versus the US-backed Kurdish-led SDF in the, in the, in the Northeast with Russia and the Syrian regime trying to exploit the tensions between Turkey and the US and, and the Kurds. And then you've got a third uh, conflict front, Iran versus Israel with the US behind Israel. And in this conflict complex, Iran's seeking a Syrian corridor, linking Iraq, linking it uh, to Lebanon through Iraq. And it's also seeking, Iran's also seeking an enhanced deterrence against Israel and US and Israel are trying to obstruct this. And you see the Russians maneuvering between them. Now, um, this, these conflicts, these three conflicts, of course, uh, are exhibiting regular kind of tit for tat clashes. Uh, these continue uh, as the, the rivals jockey to increase their leverage and there's always this risk that they're gonna escalate and get out of control. And yet it seems as if a kind of balance of power has been established in which no one of these sides are able to defeat the other. So it looks as if we're heading at least towards a semi freeze in the territorial conflict. And therefore, along with that, a kind of gradual shift in the arena, arena of struggle from the military arena to the economic arena, the struggle shifting to one over reconstruction, over sanctions. Now let's look uh, at this next dimension of the struggle, 
what could be called the battle over reconstruction in which the regime no longer in danger from the armed opposition sets out to consolidate its position by starting reconstruction. Now, the main constraint it faces is, is its economic weakness, but it has a strategy. Its reconstruction strategy uh, has a number of dimensions. One is that uh, regime loyalists have been encouraged to extract resources directly from the war economy. And now what the regime wants to do is to tighten their co-optation by channeling their war profits into reconstruction schemes. So that's one of the things the regime wants to do. The other thing it wants to do is to use reconstruction to punish its opponents, to punish the opposition. So you see the regime raising the informal settlements uh, on the outskirts of the cities like Damascus, which used to be strongholds of the opposition. We see the regime trying to expropriate property to create upscale secure zones for regime constituents. Another thing that's going on is the regime is according concessions over areas of land and mineral resources to its Russian and Iranian allies as kind of recompense for their support, but also a way of giving them a stake in getting reconstruction going. But we find of course that what happens very quickly, reconstruction stalls. And it stalls because of this imbalance where Syria's allies, Russia and Iran, which have the predominant military power on the ground are geoeconomically weak. While on the other hand, the US and its allies like the Europe and the Gulf, they don't have the same kind of military command on the ground, uh, but economically they're superior. They have the capital needed for reconstruction and they can withhold it. Now what that, what that stalling of the regime's plans for reconstruction are doing, it, it sort of, it sort of uh, manifests or, 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 or propels in some ways the moving of the playing field from the military to the economic. And that, that the, the, the stalling of reconstruction seems to show that what this is doing is it's shifting the power balance towards the US and the West when you move from the military arena to the economic one. Now, let's look more specifically at the war over sanctions and particularly the war over sanctions uh, as they apply, uh, as they've applied to the, the Syrian case since around 2011. Now, if you look at them over the long haul, what you see is a tendency to continually escalate the sanctions. The initial ones were rather targeted at regime elites. They failed. Then you see a movement towards sanctions targeting the whole economy in a more indiscriminate way. So example, you've got the EU oil boycott, you have the US driven cutoff of Syria from the whole world banking system. But these sledgehammer sanctions, as one analyst have called them, also fail to do the job. And so uh, you see the most recent episode, the most recent escalation, if you would, will in the sanctions war, the US now resorting to secondary secondary territorial sanctions in which it tries to pressure other countries uh, to sever economic ties with Syria. So that's kind of the, uh, uh, the macro overview of how sanctions have developed. Um, at this point though, I think it, it's useful to 
to be uh, to to look a little bit deeper at this war over sanctions, and particularly to ask why they seemed and so far to have failed, at least in the period from roughly 2011 to 2017. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a number of, of, of serious studies uh, that have uh, really revealing studies that have, have been done on, on the sanctions uh, and interrogating what their outcome has been. And they have reached a relative consensus and I'm just going to uh, lay out what the, the consensus seems to be uh, as to why the sanctions haven't done what the sanctioners hoped for. Um, one is the demands uh, made were maximalist. Essentially, they amounted to a demand for regime change. And such a maximalist, sanctions have never managed uh, arguably anywhere uh, to manage such a maximalist uh, demand. Uh, and in the case of, of Syria, it, it, it's, it, was, it was evident that, that the threat to the, to the Syrian regime from, from conceding the political transition that the sanctioners wanted, which was much greater than anything it faced from the sanctions. So the regime wasn't going to be budged by this if it could help it. And in resisting sanctions, uh, there were a number of conditions or strategies the regime followed, which, which enabled it to survive them. One is that the Damascus has had a long experience of, ev of evading sanctions. It knows how to do it. It also had very few assets abroad. They were well hidden. They were mostly retrieved. And so very early on, the regime had a foreign exchange reserve pot that it could use to try and survive sanctions. Another thing is the security elites who would have had to have been um, disengaged from the regime were in fact kept loyal because the costs inflicted on these security elites by the sanctions were compensated by opportunities they got for rent seeking out of the war economy. Then the crony capitalists around the regime, the sanctions instead of dividing them from the regime pushed them closer to it. Uh, also the high profile crony capitalists that got sanctioned were replaced by second level operators. So sanctioning the crony capitalists didn't do the job. They were, they were simply replaced by these, these new people who were super enriched by the rents that they got out of evading sanctions. Then another thing about uh, the literature on sanctions is that unilateral sanctions, as opposed to multilateral UN sanctioned ones, unilateral sanctions tend to encourage sanction busting. And of course, in the Syrian case, Iran and Russia were the, the Black Knights, the sanction busters. They compensated Syria for a lot of its losses from the sanctions, particularly the credit lines from Iran were crucial, ensuring the, that Syria had the basics of food, medicine, oil products. And the result was that the sanctions, at least immediate effect, was to make the regime more dependent than ever on, on Russia and Iran. And then as regards the effect of the sanctions on the population, arguably the logic of sanctions is that if you inflict enough misery on the population, they'll revolt. And in this case, uh, the scenario would have been the hope that loyalists or neutral elements of the population that had not joined 
uh, the uprising, uh, would revolt, would join the uprising uh, if, if they uh, suffered enough uh, economic misery. Uh, but this also did not succeed. Uh, one reason is that for a good period, the regime was able to sustain the delivery of benefits to the population. So the effect of the sanctions was, was to make the population more dependent on the regime for survival. The other thing though, is that it's been observed by some scholars that in an authoritarian regime, a hard authoritarian regime like the Syrian one, there's just no mechanism to translate discontent into political changes. Now, that's the story of the war over sanctions on Syria. Now, to fully understand where we're going in terms of the war on sanctions, it seems to me uh, that we've got to put that war in a broader context, that is to say, in a global level struggle over sanctions, that the struggle over Syria sanctions today is are just one part. And that global level struggle over, over sanctions uh, had begun uh, well before the Syria conflict. And what is it about? Um, I argue that what, is it, what it's about in essence is the fate of US hegemony or the role of the US as the global hegemon. Uh, arguably, uh, US hegemony has passed its peak in the political and military sense, but it seems as if what is happening is the US has used its continued dominance of the global financial system to sustain its hegemony. Its dominance of the global financial system has allowed the US to, as one scholar put it, weaponize global interdependence. What, what is happening is that the US uses sanctions to impose its foreign policy agenda on other states by punishing any company or any state that does business with the target state punish them by cutting them off from the US market and the US technology, but even more controversially, cutting them off also, that is cutting off any country which does business with a state the US is trying to target, cutting them off from the dollar denominated international payment system, which clears through US banks. And in pursuing this, particularly in the, in the case of the Iran sanctions, the US has been very aggressive in levying enormous fines on non-compliant foreign banks. There was the, the, the recent episode where um, an executive of a Chinese company, uh, uh, the United States uh, tried to have this person arrested in Canada and she was held for a long time. This is, this is indicative uh, of this struggle of the US to use its, um, to weaponize, if you will, the global financial system. Now, what makes this a struggle, a war in a way, uh, is that uh, this use of secondary extraterritorial sanctions by the United States has very dubious status. It's very controversial, has legitimacy and legal issues surrounding it, um, indicative of, of 
the dubious legitimacy is that these kinds of sanctions have, have been widely condemned by resolutions in such bodies as the UN General Assembly, the G77, the Non-Aligned Movement. Legal scholars uh, have argued that uh, these sanctions uh, contravene customary international law because there's such a violation of sovereignty of other states. But also there's the issue of treaty law, uh, that is treaties, trade treaties such as GATT and World Trade Organization. Uh, arguably uh, under these uh, secondary extraterritorial, extraterritorial sanctions are restraints on trade. Now, now these, uh, these treaties do uh, allow exceptions. They allow restraints on trade when security justifies it. But crucially, states are not entitled just to decide for themselves if their security justifies exemptions from the, world, uh, the rules of the World Trade Organization. And also, legal scholars argue that um, sanctions, even if justified in security terms, can only target those states which are threatening your security, not innocent third parties. And uh, of course, secondary sanctions do target innocent third parties. Now, one of the things we saw is that when this sort of sanctions were challenged, uh, particularly in cases such as Iran and Cuba, where the US was using secondary sanctions, this was challenged by at various points, the EU, Canada, Japan, in World Trade Organization tribunals. And when this happened, the US uh, waived the sanctions rather than let the case go to adjudication. Uh, now, when Trump uh, reimposed secondary sanctions on anybody dealing with Iran, uh, of course, uh, the US did not waive the sanctions when it encountered protests. But what it did is it paralyzed the World Trade Organization Tribunal by blocking appointments to the tribunal. So what that means is, as yet, there is no World Trade, Trade Organization case law yet on the legality of secondary sanctions. So that's where we are as far as the legality of secondary sanctions goes. It's still unresolved. Nevertheless, um, uh, we find that uh, the US is encountering other kinds of pushbacks. So uh, the struggle over sanctions is, is continuing. Now, when it came to uh, Trump's reinstituting sanctions on Iran after the US withdrew from the, the nuclear deal, uh, there was a backlash, a pushback, if you will, from, for example, the EU, uh, the so-called blocking statute made it illegal for EU nationals to comply with US sanctions on Iran. Not very effective, all kinds of loopholes, enforcement lapses in that hasn't worked too well. Uh, the, US, the EU also tried to push back by creating a sort of barter system uh, so that deals with Iran could bypass use of the dollar system. Uh, but big companies are afraid to antagonize the US by using that, so that's not been successful. China's taken a somewhat different approach, retaliation. China law now mandates counter sanctions and boycotts against the US. And then in the longer run, what, what, you're, what, you, what there's some evidence of is all of this, this weaponization 
of the dollar-denominated international financial system by Washington is sort of inspiring attempts by others to move away, reduce the use of the dollar in international trade. And both the, the euro and the Chinese yuan have been kind of promoted as, as, as alternatives to the use of the dollar. Um, so what, what, what we're talking about is what might be called a move towards financial multipolarity so that the world financial system is not uh, a unipolar one dependent solely on the on the use of the dollar but uh, the status of that is at this point is that move moving away from the dollar uh, uh, hasn't made much progress uh, that so far the other currencies uh, have not become yet really a substitute for the dollar. And certainly there is no substitute global payment system uh, uh, that could replace the dollar-based one. And, and one, it's worth noting that one reason why it's difficult uh, to move away from, from the dollar-denominated uh, global payment system is because of oil. Oil's, oil is denominated in dollars. And what that means is everybody needs dollars, to import their oil or to sell their oil. Uh, everyone has to engage with the Washington dominated global dollar system. And as, a, as an aside, uh, that's one reason the US saw a mortal threat when Saddam Hussein changed the denomination of Iraq's oil to euros. The fear that this might start a bandwagon away from the domination of the dollar over oil market. And of course, uh, that uh, Saddam's bid failed and the dollar is still uh, the dominant currency for uh, trade in oil and other hydrocarbons. Um, what uh, then is the situation uh, at, at, at the level of sort of the global struggle over, over uh, secondary sanctions that I've been describing. I think it's fair to say that at this point, uh, the situation is that the US use of, of secondary sanctions has not been effectively countered uh, by other states. Uh, it, it's, it still uh, has been quite successful in deterring countries from doing business with states like Cuba and Iran. Still though, uh, there is the issue People are debating it. Uh, the the backlash against this will will it will it lead the U.S. to think twice and to perhaps restrain its use of secondary extraterritorial sanctions or dilute their use for fear that that overusing them is going to open the door, not just to counter sanctions by others such as China, but movements away from the dollar, which of course the United States wouldn't want to see. And we're, we're told that the Biden administration is in fact undertaking a kind of review to see if the US is overextending itself. It did waive sanctions on the Nord Stream project, project, which is perhaps a sign Washington's having some second thoughts. At this point though, the question I want to focus on is how does this matter uh, for Syria? Now, um, in the Syrian case, what we've seen, of course, in the last few years, particularly since the, the, the so-called Caesar Act was passed, uh, is that the US is moving to impose secondary extraterritorial 
uh, sanctions in, in the Syrian case. And of course, the reason for this is that the US doesn't really have any leverage itself over Syria because it, it's not doing any business with Syria. It only has leverage over Syria if it can deter others, other states that have economic power from doing business with Syria. Now, we're talking about the likes of China, India, the Gulf states. So what, what Washington has done uh, in order to deter these states uh, from doing business in Syria and particularly getting involved in reconstruction in Syria is to deploy extraterritorial secondary sanctions. Now, what at this point seems to be the outcome of this? Well, um, we can see evidence that it is having an impact, an important one. One thing is the regime seems to be under lots of stress as resources become increasingly scarce to the point where the solidarity of the regime core seems to be fracturing, eroded. We can see this particularly with the falling out between uh, Assad and his cousin Mahlouf, the biggest crony capitalist. Another sign uh, that the regime is, is suffering uh, is, is it's becoming more predatory to the point where it seems to be squeezing even loyalist firms in order to extract revenues from them. It's squeezing alienating medium-sized firms at the cost of many of them exiting. Another sign of the trouble the regime's in is, is the way it is resorting to the drugs trade to kind of uh, uh, compensate uh, for the loss of, of legitimate kinds of trade. Uh, another palpable consequence is the minimal welfare capacity that the regime had been able to sustain for almost a decade uh, is demonstrably shrunk very, very considerably so that we're, the regime is at the point where not only can it not deliver much by way of welfare to those in areas it governs, but even its loyalists, the most loyalist of regions, uh, are now, uh, it's now losing the capacity, it seems, uh, to deliver welfare to them, to the point where it appears, figures are now showing us that 90% of the population are below some sort of poverty line. And, and so inevitably, even the loyalist areas are disaffected. And that, that uh, indicators of that are, are demonstrations against the fact that uh, cheap bread, electricity is no longer being delivered in a regular way. You have the attempt of loyalists to evade uh, conscription. Um, and so one might think that finally the sanctions are doing what the sanctioners wanted in terms of squeezing the regime so that either it's got to concede a political transition or it might arguably face collapse or revolt from within. However, so far, revolt hasn't been the outcome. Uh, people have pointed to a number of things that help explain this. People are just engrossed in their daily struggle to survive economically. And this debilitates political agency, if you will. Uh, the second thing is that, uh, if you're going to revolt, 
you have to have some hope it will succeed. But the situation at this point seems to be there really isn't any credible alternative to the regime. The opposition's too divided, militarily impotent. And anyway, opposition areas are no better off in terms of uh, the impact of, of sanctions. And so that rather than revolt, it looks like what we're getting is what we might just call hopelessness setting in and, and among the population. Uh, and an indicator of that is a survey done even in Damascus, which is probably the most well-off area in Syria, two thirds of the population would like to leave and are looking to leave if they can. Now, in this war of sanctions, as they're currently being applied, uh, squeezing the Syrian regime, there's some pushback. So it is a, it's, an, it's an ongoing battle. Uh, and let me just indicate some of the pushbacks. Uh, Russia for a while has been trying to play what we might call the refugee card to try to get the EU to ease sanctions by the promise that uh, Syrian refugees in Europe might be able to return to, to Syria if reconstruction could get going, uh, but also warning, warning the EU that if the Syrian state collapses or Syrians leave all hope, uh, Europe will face a new wave uh, of sanctions. But uh, so far, this arg argument has not seemed to succeed. Another thing, of course, recently Russia played the humanitarian card in the negotiations over keeping the Turkey-Idlib Turkey aid crossing open. And here, uh, Russia was able to extract a bit an increased share of humanitarian aid will now go through the regime. Uh, and also uh, as part of the deal over uh, uh, the, the, the crossings, uh, approval was given, conceded by the US for so-called early recovery economic stabilization measures. These are something between pure humanitarian aid and reconstruction. They're in a kind of middle zone. So it's a step forward for uh, Russia in breaking the sanction siege. Uh, Iran has tried, of course, uh, something a little bit similar, instrumentalizing Lebanon's energy crisis, uh, trying to, Iran trying to show that it, it could deliver oil uh, that would solve or at least alleviate Lebanon's energy crisis. And this did seem to force the US to think twice and approve alternative energy arrangements for Lebanon that would include Syria and benefit Syria. And then another thing we see is the Arab states starting to push for normalization on the grounds that the regime is staying, the people are suffering, and Iran is benefiting from the current situation in which uh, Syria is being isolated. And so we, we see a kind of Arab plan coming together, which proposes sort of phase normalization with economic benefits for the regime being, uh, being conceded, contingent on the regime making political concessions on, on political reform. Uh, it's worth noting that this, this sort of Arab plan, if you will, uh, fits very much with what the UN Special Envoy has been proposing to break uh, the deadlock. Well, what's the US stance? It seems 
something that we might call strategic ambiguity. Um, on the one hand, Biden hasn't actually applied sanctions, uh, inspiring the belief that the Arab plan has tacit US approval, or at least that the US won't respond forcefully to it. And yet on the other hand, Blinken explicitly is saying the US won't lift sanctions and sort of threatening sanctions if the Arabs proceed with reconstruction, unless he says, unless there's significant movement towards a political settlement. Significant movement, what's it mean? Is that a kind of deliberate ambiguity? Would a little bit of movement be enough? So that uh, we're in a we're in a, a domain where where there's there's ambiguity about what what the situation is. Okay, uh, let me just say a few words by way of conclusion. What lessons can we take out of the case study? Um, conclusions for Syria are grim. Uh, Syria's economy, its population, are caught between two spoilers that, that won't budge, the Assad regime and the US. Uh, seemingly both of them feel uh, that their interests are saved, served more by the current situation than by moving away from that situation. And, and of course, what this does is it leaves Syria very vulnerable to increased state failure, fragmentation, loss of sovereignty. And it does seem at this point, no other actors have been able to devise a way forward out of this stalemate, even though many actors like Russia, like Europe, like the Arab states, all stand to lose if there's a deepening of state failure in Syria. About the implications of the study for global order. I think uh, one might argue Syria is an important test of whether or not the world is transiting from a unipolar world under US hegemony to more of a multipolar world. In that, in that, if the US can prevail using its sanctions, secondary sanctions in Syria at no cost to itself, if the US can prevail at no cost to itself, even when it has no vital interest in the country uh, compared to those of its rivals, like Russia and Iran, which do have a vital interest, if the US can prevail in that situation, then that's a sign, it seems to me, that we are still in at least a partly unipolar world. It would be a sign that the US has successfully reinvented itself as a sort of sanctions hegemon, in which it has a seemingly cost-free instrument, secondary sanctions, for sustaining its global hegemony. And yet, um, sanctions, uh, as in a way the Syrian case is, is showing, are, are, but others have also, sanctions are pretty blunt instruments. They're, they're bad, it seems, at regime change. They're mostly good at creating failed states and immiserating populations. And the other problem, of course, with sanctions is they, they may provoke movement towards financial multipolarity, moving away from the dollar-denominated financial system. Uh, and, and if that happens, it would be more congruent with the fact that the world is more multipolar today on both, in both economic and political terms. Only in financial terms is it unipolar. So there's an incongruence there. And, and the overuse 
of secondary sanctions could be what it takes to provoke a movement towards financial unipolarity. Finally, um, the Syrian case, this, this metamorphizing proxy war, sanctions war that I've been talking about, uh, one might say they give us some insights uh, to update perhaps the, the lessons uh, put forth by Mary Calder's argument on the way we're in an era of new wars. Syria does seem to be an extreme case of how the international power struggle is now being played. Part of it is this competitive intervention in civil wars, proxy wars, that's Calder's new wars, but also on top of that, it, it's now part of the game to weaponize the globe, the globe's economic interdependence. And also, I think what we've seen in the Syrian case is how norms, which are supposed to be constraints on states, are actually weapons that states are using in their battle. Uh, so that the norm of sovereignty, the norm of responsibility to protect, the, the norm of humanitarian intervention, these are being instrumentalized in the struggle for power. So that, to put it uh, in a nutshell, um, the evidence does seem to be from this case that we're, in a, we're still in a realist world and, and not at all a liberal world order. So thank you, that's, uh, that's the end of the story. Well, thank you very much for that uh, amazing sort of complex view into the situation in Syria today and all its implications regionally and internationally. Uh, Professor Hennebush, if uh, given everything you, that you outline, can you perhaps shed more light on uh, developments and uh, evolutions in the nature and constituency of, the, of, of Syrian elites today? I say this in particular light of the fact that the, the, the proxy war that you described, the question of sanctions and, and reconstruction in particular, they all uh, have uh, you know, grave implications around the political economy of Syria today. And when we talk about reconstruction in particular, a lot, has to, a lot of questions uh, are in the details of what is selected, who benefits, where, when, how. Uh, so can you can you speak to some of those dynamics, please? Well, the um, the evidence on the the, the current situation um, is that you've got a kind of submerged struggle within the within the elite core. Uh, at the bottom, you've got uh, the fragmentation, of course, of authority into militias slash crony capitalists. Um, as resources uh, contract and become scarcer, the, the competition among them does seem to be intensified. You, do, you, you seem to have the, the rival malicious crony capitalists, uh, let's say at the, at the local level, uh, they have their networks, their links, clientage networks to elites, the center, the Syrian regime, but these elites, um, Assad, Maher, uh, others uh, uh, are in some kind of submerged competition, but not only though uh, are the Syrian actors involved in this, but you've got the Russians and the Iranians 
And there's a kind of competition going on also between them. And um, it, it does appear that, that if you're in this game, uh, let's say you're a crony capitalist or, or a militia leader with crony capitalist interests, uh, you need to try and have your patron in Damascus, but also you've either got to connect to the Russian or the Iranian networks. Now, how, how is this playing out? Um, of course, all these people need each other a lot. So that's a, that's a kind of perhaps a, a constraint on uh, which keeps the competition submerged. Um, but I suppose uh, from the point of view of those that are sanctioning Syria, the hope is that, that as, as the resources contract because of sanctions, that uh, there will be a falling out uh, that may become a very serious one. Um, I, I, if this, at this point, that's, that seems to be the, the contours of, of things as they are. They're still, they're still pretty much, um, we, get, we get bits and pieces, rumors. Uh, I guess the most recent one is the, is, is the claim that um, the regime and the Iranians are in a kind of falling out with Assad, uh, presumably, uh, asking Iran to to remove the, the the military leader Iran's military leader uh, with from from the region for because the Iranians are supposedly getting Syria into a conflict it doesn't want with with Israel the Iranians are encroaching on the rent networks uh, they're trying to take too much or so the uh, uh, so, so the discourse goes. Um, uh, but again, um, certainly the the regime can't do without Iran's support, as far as I can see. And, and for that matter, neither can the Russians. The Russians might have air power, but they don't have the troops on the ground. Uh, and so they need the Iranians. And it's Iran, not Russia, that's been providing the credit lines, which have kept the economy afloat so insofar as it, as it is afloat. Yeah, so I'll stop there. Okay. Um, this was uh, not really addressed in your talk, but I think the question is probably out there. Uh, could you speak to a little bit, uh, could you speak a little bit around the identitarian aspects of what everything that you've described sort of means and its implications upon Syrian identity today, particularly in the context of the, you know, the extreme sort of sectarianization that we saw uh, emerge in Syria and also how the Assad regime has attempted to uh, respond to this because at the end of the day, they still need to sort of reforge some form of Syrian identity and constitute authority and legitimacy somehow. Yes. The regime does understand that, it, of course, that uh, this is part of the battle, uh, battle of legitimacy insofar as there's any legitimacy to be had. Um, uh, one of the things we, we saw, of course, is that um, um, the, the regime tried to legitimize itself and keep the loyalty of its constituents and indeed uh, to keep the loyalty of, of wavering people by uh, demonize the op demonizing the opposition's essentially uh, external jihadists. 
uh, Islamists that were uh, a threat. And um, in parallel to that, um, there was a sort of jettisoning, jettisoning of the uh, of the old Arab nationalist legitimation because the Arabs were now the enemy. Um, and you have a, an attempt to move towards some kind of Syria, resurrection of the old idea of greater Syria or a Syrian identity uh, as something uh, that could unite uh, secular Syrians, the minorities, these are the main constituents, but also anybody who feels threatened by the notion that jihadists are the alternative. Huh? And, and for a while it did appear as if perhaps they were uh, the alternative. Now, at the same time, um, we find that uh, that Assad hasn't given up on the Islamist current. He's tried to promote a sort of moderate, maybe we want to call it Damascene, uh, uh, sort of Sufi-influenced notion of moderate Islam, and to to co-opt, and and it seems remarkably, fairly, with some success, to co-opt ulama uh, who. Uh, feel that uh, the regime's not going, so they've got to come to terms with it. In any way, the Salafists, the Wahhabists uh, are a threat to moderate Islamists. So there's an attempt to, 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 to keep alive this, this uh, as a kind of legitimacy asset also. Uh, so it is, it is a part of this struggle uh, that is kind of parallel to the one I've been describing. Uh, which is uh, more the more material struggle over over sanctions and economic survival. Yeah, at this point, that's my thoughts on that. Sure, thank you. To return to perhaps your central argument or parts of your central argument, because you obviously had many arguments in that presentation. Uh, I I had impressions when I was listening to it that uh, the, the scenario that you depict, particularly. Uh, around the question of America's intervention and their attempt to by by taking control of the areas where there is uh, the, the Derzur area with the oil fields and uh, uh, attempting to use this as a form of leverage to prevent the resources which the regime would need for the reconstruction efforts. Does not this scenario or description pit the United States against the regime, Hezbollah and Iran, and would essentially work towards the work in the direction of potentially an open military confrontation between the two. And is that something that we might be uh, potentially seeing coming out? What are the restraining uh, factors to that? Is that indeed the case that this this is sort of maybe where this might be going? Because that as a linchpin in this, this whole argument. Yes, um, one might ask what 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 the the regional implication for the uh, axis of resistance is going to be, uh, and arguably that that is one of the big things that's being fought over. Um, Syria is the has been a linchpin there. Iran, uh, of course, sees it absolutely crucial that that it retain its, 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 its status uh, in Syria as a way of kind of protecting the, its, its corridor. 
uh, to the Mediterranean, but also because uh, the Syrian conflict in some ways give, gives it an opportunity uh, to enhance its so-called its so deterrence against Israel, which is, of course, Hezbollah. But now um, there's this effort to, um, to manufacture on, on, on Syrian sites uh, much more accurate missiles uh, uh, to really enhance uh, Iran's deterrent against Israel. And the, the Israelis, of course, uh, are are determined not to allow this. And so you, you do have this constant uh, aerial attacks on Iranian and, and to some extent Syrian targets. Um, and of course the US is in some ways uh, tacitly backing Israel. So you're, you're right, there is, there is this, the risk of this tit for tat dynamic, which we've recently seen over Tanf, uh, can escalate. Um, the, the latest uh, episode of this seemed to be that um, uh, Israeli uh, forces wanting to attack uh, Iranian, Iranian militia targets, uh, instead of going through Lebanon as they used to do, had to refrain from doing that because the Russians had put in place uh, deterrent uh, anti-aircraft missiles. And so Iran had to go through Jordan and somehow was using the 10th base where the US is positioned and that uh, to, to attack regime targets in Palmyra and also in, in the Derizor area. And that of course led to the seemingly the Iranian response which is attack on, on the US base. Now, one of the interesting things is the US was pre-warned to evacuate uh, some of its forces. Who pre-warned it? Was it the Iranians themselves? Because they want to show what they can do, but they don't actually want to spark off. So there's perhaps there's some self-restraint there. Of course, the Russians are trying to restrain the uh, uh, both the Iranians and the Israelis. They don't want this to explode. Uh, but the, the risk is certainly there, a miscalculation. Um, It's hard to see um, that if all the sides are rationally calculating, they would allow this to get out of hand because the balance of power is such that no one can really hope to prevail. All you can do is prevent the opponent from winning. Huh? And that's, that's where we are. Uh, and to some extent that has shifted the grounds of the battle to the economic domain, but the military one is still being played. It's just that it doesn't seem to be so decisive or it's only one game in town. Gotcha. Uh, perhaps you could shed some light uh, about uh, the new Biden administration and to what extent it represents a uh, divergence from the previous Trump administration. Your, your talk seemed to sort of go back and forth a little bit on this. Uh, and perhaps that's also because that's indeed the situation. Uh, they haven't quite worked out what they want to do. And uh, so they construct ambiguity around it, but essentially continue the policy of attempting to deepen the quagmire and prevent their enemies from, from, or their, from, from actually declaring victory or winning. You know, a, kind of, a, quite, a quite interesting lens into this is the discourse of James Jeffries who was, a, was the uh, 
the man in charge of the Syria file under, under Trump. And uh, he's the guy that was quite candid about what the United States was uh, up to. Uh, it, it was to, to get Russia and Iran into a quagmire huh? uh, uh, by uh, depriving them of the possibility of translating what seemed to be their military dominance or victory in the Syrian civil war into uh, a successful uh, asset. Instead, uh, Syria would be a drain on their resources and would show that they can't uh, win. Um, now, looking at his discourse uh, about what's happening under Biden, uh, one of his, uh, his arguments uh, seemed to be a kind of warning Biden. Don't you realize that it is very important that Iran and Russia doesn't win because it'll have implications for the whole regional balance of power. That's what he's saying. It's, it's like the old struggle for Syria. Who wins in Syria will win across the region. So he's promoting that in one of his early warnings to the Biden administration for fear that they're not taking this seriously enough. All, all they care about is ISIS. Uh, they've forgotten about Iran and uh, and, and the Syrian regime, or maybe they care a little bit, a little bit about humanitarian, the humanitarian disaster which is shaping up. Uh, but again, they've taken their, their eye off the ball. On the other hand, more some more recent discourse uh, by Jeffries uh, uh, seems to take a somewhat different stance. Uh, he tells us that um, actually. Um, the Arab parties like King Hussein of Jordan uh, realize, they understand that uh, probably they won't be sanctioned if they start to move towards normalization. They're certain, Jeffrey says, they won't be sanctioned or they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be moving. Uh, Abdullah wouldn't be on the phone to Assad. Uh, uh, this uh, possibility of a, a of the energy pipeline from Egypt through through Jordan into across Syria and into Lebanon that, that Syria would, would benefit from has been actually approved explicitly by Biden, Biden's administration. So um, uh, Jeffrey seems to be conceding that the game is lost from his point of view, and yet he takes a slightly different angle on this. He says, well, maybe it's a good idea if the US shows that it's still in the game, shows the Arab states that it does care about their stake in not letting Syria implode. And so what the United States has to do is work with the Arabs to make sure the deal with the regime, that is some economic normalization is accompanied by regime concessions on political reform so that there'll be a parallel movement now, maybe that's uh, the scenario that, that Jeffries imagines might, might happen. Um, and if anybody knows what's going on, uh, I'm, I'm assuming he's not frozen out of the inner circle completely under Biden. So that's a bit of hope, I suppose, uh, if, if all sides understand they can't win. And so, um, everybody's gonna lose as the current situation continues, not just the Syrian population, but the neighbors, the Europeans and the Americans, if the, the idea gets out that the United States doesn't care what happens to Syria. 
as long as it it'll continue to play hardball. It doesn't pay any cost to use the sanctions, secondary sanctions, and the U.S. is showing it doesn't doesn't care about what its Arab allies think. So it could be that that's the scenario. But I think Washington um, isn't moving decisively. Syria is not the center of its interest. After withdrawing from Afghanistan, the U.S. of course can't Biden can't be seen to be throwing in the towel in Syria and abandoning its Kurdish allies uh, as it abandoned its Afghan ones. Uh, so probably you're gonna have continued ambiguity, maybe allowing the Arabs to go ahead a bit. If Russia were to lean on the regime and actually force it to start making some of these minimal concessions enough to make a credible argument that there's movement towards a political transition, then this might free up a situation in which you can have incremental movements towards economic reconstruction. Uh, but taking this, taking the form probably of the of this middle domain called uh, early recovery, uh, you know, refurbishing utilities, water, health, healthcare, that sort of thing. And yeah, that's that's the, the optimistic scenario, the best case perhaps that we can hope for. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm going to use the, the remaining 15 minutes of this webinar to sort of field the questions that have come in on the question and answers uh, button. So encouraging everybody who's out there to put their questions up there. Um, I'm going to start from the top. Uh, uh, someone in the audience named Beerson has asked a question, has asked two questions. I'm going to just take the first one because the second one I think has largely been taken up by Dr. Hinnebush. But I think I would like to hear more about your concept of semi-proxy war. Can you elaborate on, on, on this issue of, rather than using proxy war or civil war or whatever, the semi part? Uh, yes, um, I didn't explain that. Perhaps I should have. Uh, there's a kind of debate in the, in the literature on what constitutes a proxy war. I think in its pure form, we have a proxy war when some external power is pretty much able to instrumentalize a client or a proxy inside uh, the state that's under contestation. So in the case of Syria, uh, where you have, let's say, cases where um, uh, Iran uh, establishes uh, Shia militias inside Syria, recruited from outside, from let's say uh, Iraq or, or Pakistan or even, even further afield. Um, and where these are, are seen pretty much to be very dependent on Iran, uh, they're, they're basically uh, tools of Iran. They don't have their own interests. That's the pure proxy war. Um, now, there are dimensions of that uh, in, in the uh, current contest in Syria, um, one might argue that um, besides the Iranian so-called proxies, um, many of the free Syrian army elements that have been co-opted by Turkey into what the, Turkey calls the Syrian National Army, I think, co-opted to do what? Not to fight Assad anymore, but to fight the Kurds or the, the Syrian Democratic Forces. So here again, these, these, formation, these Syrian formations do seem to be close to the pure notion of, of proxy. Uh, but in other cases, 
where the external power is intervening, it's lo the local, the local, uh, the locals are, you can't call them proxies. They're more like allies. So for example, um, uh, in the case of, um, oh, uh, well, of the relationship, let's say between um, the regime and Russia, you can't say the regime is a proxy uh, of Russia or of Iran for that matter. It's, it has its own interests. It's not, it's not at all purely dependent. There's an interdependence there. So the, the intervening external power has an interdependence relationship with the Syrian, with, with the Syrian actor. So that's a sort of different dynamic. Uh, what we've got is competitive intervention. Different powers are intervening, but only in some cases have they established pure proxies. In other cases, it's allies. So for want of a better term, I call it a semi-proxy war because it's, 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 it is a sort of hybrid. It's more than just a proxy war. It's, it's a war of competitive intervention. Um, what, it, what this has in common with the proxy war is that in each case you have an external power which, which has uh, its internal Syrian ally, partner, whatever proxy, whatever war you want to use. Uh, but there's a variation on how much the Syrian actor is purely dependent on the external power and how, how much the relationship is one of interdependence. So sorry going on too long about that really. No, on the contrary, very insightful, thank you. Uh, the next question comes from Henry Hoger. <clears throat> he, he writes the following, he says, recent reports from the White Helmets in Idlib area support your description of military conflict is semi-frozen in that COVID seems now to be causing more damage uh, than, for example, the regime and the Russian bombing. Presumably, COVID is a serious threat in regime areas as well, given their weak uh, sanctions-affected health systems. Do you see the pandemic as introducing a significant new element onto the overall strategic picture? Uh, that, that's, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things I think you're, you're, you're quite right that uh, COVID is indiscriminately damaging uh, people in pretty much all of the areas, regime controlled and non-regime controlled areas. Uh, because of course the, the, health, the health system has been destroyed to a great extent in the, in the civil war, less so perhaps in a place like Damascus. But my understanding is that, that Damascus is suffering a lot uh, from COVID. Has it had any impact on the struggle? Um, one might argue that it did contribute to the sort of freeze in the conflict in the sense that um, uh, it, it becomes more difficult uh, to carry on a, a military contest uh, when the troops, uh, the people involved are, are suffering from this and um, resources uh, need to be perhaps diverted to, to deal with this. So I think there is some, some evidence that, um, that it did help contribute to the, the freezing of the conflict. But I think the main factor was this, this just perhaps consolidated the freezing insofar as the conflict's frozen. Obviously it's not completely frozen at all. And particularly when it comes, let's say to the Israeli-Iranian contest, it's not frozen. 
the Israelis are operating by air. So, but when it comes to, um, yeah, I think uh, the, conf the, 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 the Idlib front line, uh, uh, probably this has played some role uh, in it. That, that is COVID has. It's interesting. Um, I was looking at a documentary the other night on on the Spanish flu influ uh, influenza, which pandemic, which killed millions of people around World War One, and uh, was surprised to learn that the German offensive, which was thought to be perhaps decisive, was debilitated by the fact that German troops were suffered a great deal. From, from the pandemic and, and it just blunted um, the offensive. So uh, it's certainly the case that this kind of thing can uh, de debilitate uh, military operations. Sure, thank you. Uh, you touched a little bit on Israel actually in, in your previous answer, but Ross Campbell asked, where does Israel fit into future developments? Uh, do you wanna say anything about that? Um, of course, uh, for, for Israel, the main thing that, that, that's at stake is to prevent what it, what it sees as the permanent entrenchment of Iran as um, a military actor, but also as, as an actor which is kind of infiltrated in some ways the, the Syrian regime itself in the sense that uh, the manpower shortages forced the regime to sort of incorporate Iranian elements and militias into the regime itself. And of course, the uh, Iran uh, is trying to enhance its its missile capacity in Syria. So, of course, the, the Israelis are trying to deal with this uh, as they usually do uh, by using their military superiority. Uh, but they've been shocked a bit by the fact that um, it seems a missile or two uh, can get through their many-layered defense. So if there's a, a showdown in which thousands of missiles might be launched against Israel, they're, they're bound to suffer. So I would have thought the Israelis don't want this tit-for-tat war to get too far out of control either. Russia evidently is trying to broker, dampen down the thing. Uh, although the Russian behavior is quite interesting and one can't be sure what's going on here because uh, on the one hand, they're supposed to be defending Syrian airspace, but, uh, and, and when they fail to do that, it calls in question, not only their status as, as a patron ally, uh, but also the capability of their air defense systems, which presumably they want to sell if the Israelis are able to just get through them easily. Uh, so, so Russia wants to uh, put some limits on this conflict, uh, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem to want to invest a lot in, in pushing back against the Israelis. Does, is it even pleased perhaps if the Iranian forces in some places get, get hit, particularly where the Iranians are seen to be pushing things too far to the point where they endanger uh, Russia's interest in preserving the Syrian regime, and uh, Russia's interest also as playing broker between Israel and, and Syria in some ways. Uh, I think Putin values his good connections with Israel, which, which are another way of, 
of demonstrating, let's say, to the U.S. that Russia is uh, indispensable. It's the, it's, the, it's the country that can talk to everybody, huh? can talk to Iran, can talk to Syria, can talk to Israel, can talk to Turkey. So um, from Israel's point of view, it could be that they may come to the view that um, the Assad regime interests are not identical to those of Iran and therefore that it is a interlocutor which they would do well not to destroy. If the regime collapses, who will pick up the pieces? Iran possibly, but also jihadists of various uh, stripes. So um, one would have thought uh, that Israel is going to play the game rather like all the parties are doing it. That is, uh, trying in in these very in these very, in this in this conflict situation to to increase its leverage. Um, using military means in some respects to increase its diplomatic leverage and, and perhaps to, to use its connections. It's, it's Israel has this double connection to US and to Russia uh, to help push back against what it sees as the Iranian threat. The other possibility of course, is that, is that Israel could come to understand that Iran's role is essentially defensive. It wants a deterrent. It's not going to, it's not in Iran's interest to get into a conflict with, with Israel. Its interest is to have the capability of deterring Israel. If there was a resolution to the uh, nuclear issue, it, Israel opposes it, or at least ostensibly it does, but it could really reduce tensions quite a lot and, and uh, reduce the, the, the risk of an unintended escalation. So, I don't know, uh, the Israeli government is, um, is rather heterogeneous, so one doesn't quite know. Sure. They have a unified view exactly about what they ought to be doing now. Sure. Okay, we're transitioning to another question, this one from Graham Barker, who asks, are the various parties using the past or their versions of it to legitimize themselves? Perhaps this touches upon the identity question that I asked asked previously, but I'll leave it as worded there. The various parties using the past or versions of it to legitimize themselves. Well, yes, uh, uh, if, they're, if by their past, uh, we mean their, their conduct in the current conflict, um, but maybe other things too. Uh, certainly uh, take the case of, of, of Turkey, uh, Turkey has, of course, um, uh, historically been, uh, been uh, if we go back to the, to the Ottoman period, uh, uh, Syria was part of the empire, uh, actually a, a privileged part of, part of the empire. And uh, under the AKP, the notion that, that, that there are affinities uh, which were obscured by the nationalist struggle between Turkish and Arab nationalism. These, their affinities, uh, which can be reconstituted through some kind of um, moderate Islam, which are shared by the, the various parties. And so 
uh, Turkey seems to feel that it has a legitimate role in the Syrian conflict. It's, sure. it's I think Erdogan actually refers to, at some point, the Syrian conflict as a domestic issue for Turkey, suggesting that. Yep. So Turkey's tried to legitimize itself as entitled to be involved. And, um, hmm. it, and, it, and of course, the Russians, we've always been an ally. Mm -hmm. um, we support state institutions uh, as a way of stabilizing. We're for, we're for stability. We're not, we're not uh, interested at like the US is in remaking the world in our image. Uh, we defend a multipolar world where there are different ways of governance. Sure, sure. And so that, that legitimizes our role in the Syrian case. Yeah. Professor Barker, who asked the initial question, has added sort of a sort of part explanation of what he was going after. And perhaps, he, he says uh, he, he, he means the deeper historic and archaeological past. Uh, do you see evidence of any of that taking place? The use of those pasts to justify the present? I would say um, that probably the regime uh, in kind of reconstituting its legitimacy package uh, insofar as that has involved stressing the notion of a Syrian identity, which is distinct from an Arab identity. Of course, the Ba'athist narrative has always been that Syrians are Arabs. They're the most Arab of the Arabs. The language is the key thing that makes the identity and makes, makes uh, Syrians Arab. But as the, as the Arabs got to be seen as the enemy in some respects, uh, the Syrians have looked uh, to uh, revitalize another identity that they can fall back on. And that is the Syrian identity, which goes back arguably to pre-Arab times. And so you have evidently Aramaic being taught in schools. Um, I'm sure, uh, and the Russians are involved too, I think in reconstructing Palmyra in some respects, I thought I heard uh, that is um, the, the pre-Arab um, Syrian heritage. Uh, and of course, um, the claim that uh, this was rescued from the, uh, uh, from, the uh, from ISIS and their attempt to destroy and eradicate this part of Syria's past. And so pushing back against ISIS, Russia and the Syrian regime will, will claim some, uh, some, uh, some credit along these lines. Um, of course, at the same time as Aramaic is being taught, Persian's being taught, so, and Russian. So there's a kind of, if one looks at the languages which alongside Arabic are now being taught in Syrian schools, it seems that there's a struggle over Syria's identity. Uh, are Syri if Syrians are gonna learn Russian, that means one thing. If they're gonna learn Persian, that means quite another thing. Sure, fascinating, thank you. I think we have time for one or two more questions. So I'm going to uh, take Diana Dark's question who, as we know, has, speak, has written about Syria herself. She writes, you mentioned a survey saying that two thirds of the population in regime areas want to leave. Where does that survey come from and who organized it? She adds, wealthy businessmen are increasingly leaving, but for most, it's not an option. They're simply locked into the current disastrous, disintegrating economic situation. How does that resolve in your view? 
So a question about yeah. that statistic you said, yes. I, I regret I, I, I can't uh, offhand uh, say where the survey, where I got the survey. Of course, it's two thirds of people in Damascus who would like to leave. But of course, the vast majority don't don't have that that option. Although, uh, if they can find a place that'll take them, it does almost seem as if the regime is not trying to stop people from leaving. Hmm. Um, how this can be resolved? Well, it's it's a very very grim business. But the idea that so many Syrians would like to leave the country. Uh, is a disaster for Syria, but it's also a disaster for the neighbors. It could be a disaster for the Europeans too, if there's another wave uh, of, of migration uh, to their knocking on their, on their doors. So one might think that there's a lot of people have a stake, some powerful, some not, in trying to limit this disaster. And, and of course, what, what we have to hope is the two spoilers, the intransigent sides that are sort of sustaining the stalemate. That is the regime on the one hand, the US on the other, that there will be some movement on both sides to, to, to appreciate that really in the end of the day, there's gonna be costs for, for them too, uh, if, if this downward deterioration is not stopped. So I guess what I'm saying is if people would, take the enlightened self-interest instead of a short-term self-interest uh, on board in their calculations, it, it might give us some light at the end of the tunnel. But of, of course, never never depend on people doing that, looking at the enlightened long-term self-interest. Gotcha. Uh, allow me to thank you for your fascinating uh lecture as well as your insightful comments and answers to all the questions that were out there. I'm sure everyone in the audience was uh, truly enlightened by them. Uh, and I would just like to hand over to Professor Carol Palmer to, I guess, tie up any loose ends, but thank you sincerely from us here at CBRL and, and me personally from Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tofik, for your invitation and, and your wonderful hosting. Thank you. And just to join my thanks to uh, Professor Hinnebush for a wonderful lecture and, for, and to my colleague Tafik for, for um, the questions and, uh, and uh, fielding the answers <laughs> so, so well. Um, so what remains for me to say is to thank you, the audience, also for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed this event. Please do look at our website for future webinars on the Levant. Um, and you can visit our website at cbrl.ac.uk, also join our mailing list if you're not on already, and even support our work by becoming a member. Um, we're currently planning more, more lectures and events for 2022, so, so keep checking back on us. Thank you once again for joining us today. Thank you to, once again to our speaker and to my colleague and uh, wishing you all a good evening. Stay well and safe. <laughs>